You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Services Coordinator at the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and thank you for joining us at the Maryland State Library for the Blind and Physically Handicapped, and welcome to Writers Live on a very blustery night. Tonight, we're thrilled to have Christiana McCausland um, reading from and talking about her book, The Orchard Lover. After she speaks, we'll have time for a Q&A, and there will be time to mingle and buy books. Christiana is a graduate of Emory University and attended the Johns Hopkins University Master's in Writing program. Her nonfiction articles have appeared in publications including The Christian Science Monitor, Better Homes and Gardens, Baltimore Magazine, The Baltimore Sun, People, and at CNN.com. She is the author of the nonfiction book, Maryland Steeplechasing. It's always a pleasure to host and support local authors at the Pratt. This story of social conflict, dealing with dementia, and the possibility of love, or not, is certain to captivate you. I've also never wanted to take up canning more than while reading Alden's process. (laughs) So please give a warm welcome to Christiana McCausland. So we are a much smaller group than any of us anticipated. I think we're all just thankful that the library is open. Make sure that everyone can hear. Um, So thank you for the nice introduction, and thank you everyone for braving the elements and for coming out on such a cold night. Um, In my nonfiction writing work, I have actually spent quite a bit of time at the Pratt Library um, doing research, um, particularly in the Maryland Room, which even if you don't have research to do, I highly recommend you go take a look because it's just a fascinating place to go and go through the vertical files and see the wonderful things they have there. And so having spent so much time doing research in the Pratt and really relying on it very heavily, this really has come very nicely full circle to be here this evening, and it's a nice treat. So I'm going to start with a reading, but this is not from my book. Um, So it is, this is a, a poem called Yes, No. How necessary it is to have opinions. I think the spotted trout lilies are satisfied standing a few inches above the earth. I think serenity is not something you just find in the world, like a plum tree holding up its white petals. The violets along the river are opening their blue faces like small dark lanterns. The green mosses, being so many, are as good as brawny. How important it is to walk along, not in haste, but slowly, looking at everything and calling out, yes, no. The swan, for all his pomp, his robes of glass and petals, wants only to be allowed to live on the nameless pond. The catbriar is without fault. The water thrushes down among the sloppy rocks are going crazy with happiness. Imagination is better than a sharp instrument. To pay attention, this is our endless and proper work. So this um, is not one of my favorite poems by Mary Oliver, but I selected it for two reasons. The first is that that last line has always really paid it, has always really resonated with me. To pay attention, this is our endless and proper work. Um, I would say that I've always been someone who has paid attention. I've always been someone who has seen the details in things. Um, 
I have been a freelance journalist for more than 15 years. And as a stringer working for People magazine in the early 2000s, uh, my bureau chief told me once how important it was to include the most minute details of interviews. Um, those details would never actually make it into the final story, um, but the pieces were edited and massaged into the People magazine style and size by an editor in New York. And so as stringers, we would actually file these huge stories um, and then the editor in Manhattan would feel like they were there with us when we did the interview and be able to put the piece together. And I can still remember my bureau chief's advice. She said, if there's a can of soda on a person's desk when you interview them, you want to make sure that you mention it. And she said, don't just say there's a can of soda there. You know, is it a Diet Coke or was it a Sprite? She's like, it all matters. And that really stuck with me. There's that old saying about the devil being in the details, but for me, that's also where the story is as well. The second reason I chose to start with a poem is because poetry was my first love. Um, my second grade teacher, whose name was Mrs. Bodell, was the first person to tell my parents that she thought that I had a little bit of a talent for writing. And my mom, to whom I will always be eternally grateful, went out and bought me my own journals where I could write my own poems. And so they started out pretty straightforward. So I have, I have one from 1983. <laughs> Crayons are beautiful with their beautiful shades of red, blue, and green. They are a masterpiece on paper, a masterpiece to me. And I'm going to go ahead and just tell everyone to hold their applause on that one. <laughs> so, okay. so, but there was something very empowering about being told um, at such a young age that I was good at something in that magical moment in my childhood education where I knew just enough reading and writing to be dangerous. You know, someone had told me that I could be a writer, that I was good at this. And I really took that idea and I ran with it. And I sought out poems um, by other authors and by other poets, and I quickly met and fell in complete love with Emily Dickinson, particularly with her nature poems. And I can still remember um, when I encountered one of my favorites of hers, um, the, and the, the first lines of it go, the moon was but a chin of gold a night or two ago, and now she turns her perfect face upon the world below. Her forehead is of amplest blonde, her cheek like barrel stone, her eye into the summer dew, the likest I have known. And this poem then goes on to describe her amber lips and the privilege it is for the stars to be her companion. Children are always told about the man in the moon, and I would look um, up at the sky, and, and I just, I didn't get it. I didn't see the man in the moon. But when I read this poem, it was completely transporting and enchanting to me because it made sense to me that the moon could be a woman. Um, and that inspired me. And to be quite honest, I still find it extremely enchanting, even as an adult. Um, despite my best efforts, I was never going to make a living or a great splash as a poet. And with age and with maturity, I moved away from writing poetry, but I still read it quite a bit. Um, and I discovered novels and the means to not just have a small snapshot of something as you get with a poem, but to have a place where I could create a complete world. Um, I think poetry is in my DNA, and because that is where everything began for me, it seemed a fitting place to start this evening. I think it also gives you a better insight into the book and into its really deeply lyrical style. Um, and I think now I'm going to go ahead and read from, from my book, and then we'll come back to our conversation. So this is from sort of midway through, through the book. 
After Bruce left, Alden sat at the kitchen table, turning over the bottle vase in her hands. There were traces of dirt and faded paper where a label must have been years ago. But the glass was brilliant blue, and there was a pattern of flowers in relief above where the medicine label was once adhered. The vase had held Queen Anne's lace, but it did not handle well the trauma of being kicked on the porch. The heads drooped. She got up, threw the flowers away, and set the bottle back on the table. Suddenly restless and stifled in the warm house, she wandered out and into the orchard. Like the air, thick with humidity, she walked slowly, touching the freckled orb of a ripening peach on occasion, but not feeling the firm, woolly flesh against her fingertips, because her mind was elsewhere, beyond the trees that normally grounded her. As the darkness deepened the color of light in the orchard, she walked neither with purpose nor without, lost in a veil of memory that closed around her like the green shroud of the peach trees in the gloaming of evening. Sleepwalking although awake, Alden walked until she found a place in the orchard where she could sit with her back against a tree trunk and still see the rising moon through the tree branches. It was too hot to wear her hair loose, but now she pulled it down and over one shoulder where it rippled in a russet curve. Like the mane of a wild horse, was what Charlie Payne had said the summer he was Alden's lover. Have you ever seen the Mustangs, Alden? He questioned her one night as he stroked her long hair. You can hear them before you see them because their hooves are so loud, so loud it's like, well, it's like thunder or heartbeats, really loud heartbeats. And you feel your own heart beating too because you're scared to see that much horse flesh moving wild, but you're excited too, you know, because you can feel their wildness and you just want to throw yourself into that crazy loud herd and get carried away. Do you know that feeling? When he looked at her then, she knew he was there, she knew, she knew he was there with her, but not. He was far away on a western plain with an excited glimmer in his eye that she imagined was the same one would see in one of those free-roaming horses just living to protect its wildness. She tried to go there with him, but the boundaries of her imagination ended just outside the valley in which she lived, and she could not quite see herself standing next to Charlie in a vast grassland being whipped by wild mustangs. You'd love it out there, Alden, he said, returning them both to the orchard. He buried his head in her hair. I'll take you there someday. You'll see. You'll see the ancestors to your pretty mane of hair. He made himself laugh, and to Alden he was like a child, and she stroked his head, and he stroked hers, and she said, yes, Charlie, because it was an easy and pleasant thing to say, though she knew she would never go with him. And as they stroked, she continued to say, yes, Charlie, until he was not at all like a child to her, but a man, and the stroking ceased to be pleasant and became more urgent. When Alden wrapped herself around him, her mane of hair fell over them like a cloak. Now she stroked her hair alone and tried to follow her thoughts, but they were as bees gathering pollen from many flowers, unwilling to sit down and be obedient. She thought of Bob Johnson and his steady faithfulness to the farm, of the young boy Will so full of energy and she believed secrets, and of John Gray who alerted in her some sense of unruly danger. Her mind lingered for a moment on Nick before she pushed him away and replaced him with the image of Reginald. She thought about the undeniable stench of age, of his strange new companionship with the evangelical reverend who visited with more frequency than Alden liked, though she could not say why. Then, surprising even herself, she thought of Bruce Powell, her mind wandering above the trees and over the sheep pasture, beyond the property fence and down the adjacent hill to the Powell's clabbered house, and the window on the second floor. But when she tried to look inside, it was dark. Alden had never even seen Bruce's bedroom. His life away from her was a darkened pane of glass that reflected her own face back to her. She turned away from the blackened window, grounded again in the orchard. Her orchard, really, though she'd never quite think of it that way, not in her heart. It was Reginald's orchard, her father Albert's orchard even, but never hers. She was merely a steward. But wouldn't it belong to her soon? And what would she do then? 
It had gotten dark. She looked at the moon high in the sky, at how it beamed through the leaf canopy and made shadowy fish on the grass, whose schools moved in a breeze so delicate it was imperceptible. And yet there was heat lightning too, small explosive bursts of blue and orange light. The world was dynamic and contrary, and she thought, if only I could catch this little bit of world in my hand and slow it down for a moment, I could see it from every angle and understand it, and then I would be free. But her palms were empty and warm. Hopefully we all feel a little warmer after that as well. <laughs> Transported to summer. So I return again to Mary Oliver and to that line about to pay attention is our endless and proper work. Um, because in many respects, this book owes its creation to me watching chickens. Um, chickens are very in vogue right now. I know a lot of people have them. We may even have urban chicken farmers out there. Um, I grew up on what you would probably call a mini farm, and it and the surrounding area really were the inspiration for this book. Um, we had sheep, we had a pony, um, we had um, a small orchard, a large vegetable patch. And one evening as an adult, I was visiting with my parents, and I had gone up and I was had fed the chickens, and I was watching them, and I was, I was really watching them. And chickens have this way of walking where they kind of thrust their head forward. Like they have to like poke a hole in front of them, and then they can go through. And I was just sitting there in the evening and watching these chickens move around, and the first line of this book just came right into my head about April in the Valley had chosen to be cruel, daffodils that opened in a wild celebration of color now hunched their shoulders against a blistering cold, regretting their frivolity. After a few fleeting days of sunshine and warmth, an aggressive cold snap had settled down in the valley where Aldenforth was trying to get her chickens to lay. So this book centers on Alden Forth, who is unconventional, not because she is a rebel, um, but because she's lived in complete isolation um, on this farm where she was raised by her grandfather. So she's an innocent of a kind, um, completely free of any sort of social constraints, just based on her upbringing. Um, has anyone read the V.C. Andrews book, The Flowers in the Attic, the old book? Thank you for owning up to that. Um, I didn't in the least bit have that book in mind when I wrote this, but it did come to me recently that there is a similarity there. Um, that when you're raised in, so the V.C. Andrews book is about young children who are basically raised in an attic, and they have a very sort of unconventional approach to life because of their isolation. And so when you are raised in that form of real isolation, you do become a creature of your natural urges, and you are unfettered by the social norms that most of us have an understanding of. And that's really Alden's foundation. She's a creature of the earth more than she's a creature of society. And she's a sensuous being, and she takes a lover every summer, as you could tell from that reading, um, from the migrant workers who come in and help to take in the annual peach harvest. She is a loyal person, and she never leaves any of her lovers because she has her one surviving relative, her grandfather, Reginald, who has dementia. And she was also raised by him to be deeply superstitious and to believe that their family is unlucky in love, which is why she never marries, particularly her childhood friend, Bruce, who was mentioned in that, in that reading. And he would like nothing better than to marry her. And so because of all these things, she is fundamentally a, a really lonely person, and that marks a lot of her decision-making and her character development. Um, I had an idea when I first began this book to write it like a fairy tale, because Alden has this otherworldly quality. Um, but 
as was mentioned in the introduction, I was a student at the Johns Hopkins Master's in Writing program, and one of my faculty disavowed me of that idea very quickly. And in the end, I think that she was correct. Um, but I do love magic realism. I love writers like Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I love the poet Pablo Neruda. And so I wanted there to be that sense of rich density to the book. Um, I wanted readers to really feel the, the weight of the air, to smell the peaches, to feel the heat on their skin. I wanted the book's imagery to be almost tactile um, so that readers felt this sort of primal connection and kind of felt like they were in a little bit of a spellbinding place. A book that did influence the early writing of this was Steinbeck's East of Eden. Um, I initially had hoped that this book would be in that vein, a sort of classic good versus evil, um, but I'm not Steinbeck and books evolve and take their own courses. And what I did want to do was to create an ultimate foe for Alden. Um, and who would be more threatened by a woman who did not conform to convention in the early 1930s than an overzealous evangelical minister? And that is how I created Reverend Arnold Beale. So Reverend Beale is a traveling minister. Um, I had an opportunity as a journalist to write a story about Emory Grove, which is the Methodist enclave out in Glendon. Um, and the research I did for that story informed my understanding of the time and the place and the community that might have shaped the evangelical world that Reverend Beale would have recognized. Is anyone familiar with Emory Grove? It's still actually open today. Um, and has cabins that people go out to in the summer and they have a beautiful open-air tabernacle that also does services. <clears throat> it's, a neat, um, it's a neat sort of piece of history that's still really well preserved. Um, I do suspect that the Methodists at Emory Grove were all probably perfectly nice people and um, Reverend Beale is not. <laughs> um, people have said, um, that someone said that he's a real pot stirrer and I think that's probably the most um, uh, passable way to describe him. Um, there's some other more colorful things that I wouldn't say here. <laughs> um, so he's, he's a deeply unpleasant person. And people often ask if he is based on someone who I have known. And the short answer is yes. Um, I have certainly known faith leaders who abused, for lack of a better word, their, their power or allowed their position to cloud their judgment with ego but I also think that from any reader's perspective, I don't think we need to go very far to find abundant examples of authority figures, whether they're faith leaders or anywhere else, who have betrayed the trust that gets put into them by community. So I think that there are qualities to his reprehensible nature that we might recognize um, just from our own passing lives. But he is predatory. Um, he finds people's weaknesses, and he uses those to drag them into his version of faith. Um, and he, because he is, um, <laughs> but he is like all villains, a damaged person as well. Um, you may never like him, but you may understand him. Or you may understand what makes one person good and what turns another person evil because oftentimes it's the slimmest margin of error. Um, I have sisters in this book, one who is a real witch and the other who is a browbeaten, lonely heart. 
Um, I have two ministers, both with traumatic childhoods who grow up to be very different men. Um, I have a lot of characters in this novel because I wanted to express something about community, um, but I also wanted to explore the ways in which we make our own monsters. Um, you know, we always say what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, um, but it can also really turn you into a villain as well. Um, while this didn't become a book about good versus evil, it did become one about the natural world versus the conventional world, and of sensuality versus social structure. Um, there's a line in the book um, when Alden is speaking with Reverend Beale about why she doesn't attend church. And she explains that she finds God everywhere, especially in her orchard. And that is just anathema to Reverend Beale and everything that he believes in. And he just is consumed with this idea that he has to either bring, him, bring her to his way of thinking or he has to destroy her. And she's also raising up in him the specters of his own youth and of his own very warped understanding of femininity. And it perhaps is because she brings up those dysfunctional memories of his own childhood that it makes him even more dedicated to just eradicating her. You know, there's a lot of evil in the world, and throughout my life, I think I, like most people, have wondered where it all comes from. Um, you know, is this something that is latent in our DNA? Is it a matter of how different personalities react to challenging situations? Um, you know, perhaps like many people, I have questioned whether religion is to blame. Um, you know, so much blood has been shed over centuries and still is shed today in the name of religion. And in this book, I was really able to air out all of my questions of faith. You know, are you less faithful if you find God in nature? Are you more devout if you go to a four-walled church? If you do wrong in the name of what your faith says is right, is it still wrong? Um, fundamentally, do we even need faith? Or is it just another form of superstition? I am not going to answer those questions tonight because we would never leave here. <laughs> and also because I don't feel that it's my job as the author to provide those answers. Um, I think it's my job to raise the questions and then let readers draw their own conclusions. Um, I mentioned earlier that I learned to enjoy writing fiction because I could create my own world. And I definitely went hog wild in creating this farming community. Um, the world is full of so many characters, and I loved all of mine, and I love them all for different reasons. And while this story is about Alden, it is also very much about community. Um, we live in a very interesting time for community. Um, I believe that communities are more fragile than we might think. I think that they can break down more easily than we might want to imagine. Um, I think we might see some of that now in our own lives. And yet without community, we really are adrift. Um, the fictional valley in which Alden lives is a nice little petri dish um, for the experiment of ripping a neighborhood completely apart and watching how it gets put to back together. And even if you put it back together where the seams are always going to show. Um, you know, I do not make my living as an author, but I have made my living as a nonfiction writer, and people often ask me if my nonfiction writing influences my fiction. And I would say that being a journalist has kept my eye for detail and for character very sharp. 
Um, and you also take very seriously the elements of the story that need to be researched. Um, for example, this book is set in the early 1930s, and as I mentioned earlier, I spent a lot of time researching a lot of it at the Pratt Library, um, particularly things like what farm equipment was available, uh, what kind of cars there were, uh, the availability of electricity in rural areas. Um, when I was wrapping up the drafts, um, several friends from Hopkins helped me put together uh, a timeline, like a family tree for all of my characters, and we went through and figured out when everyone was born and, and whether or not they could have been alive when certain things had happened, just to make sure that the dates all matched up correctly. Um, you know, I've, I've read a lot of books by other um, journalists who have turned into novelists. I actually read a book this fall by the former um, Baltimore Sun writer, Sujata Massey. Is anyone familiar with her books? Um, and uh, I had an opportunity to hear her speak at a, at a book club, and she was fabulous. And I think she really exemplifies this, this sentiment that I'm trying to express, that there's an inherent obedience to getting certain things accurate that marks the writing of those who have a background in the nonfiction world. Um, journalistic integrity is a potent and a real thing, and please don't let anyone tell you otherwise. <laughs> and once you have that commitment to integrity in storytelling, you never lose it. Um, that being said, one of the nice things about writing fiction is that you get to make stuff up, <laughs> which is really liberating. And you can write as much or as little as you want, which you cannot do when an editor comes to you and says, you have a 500 word story due in such and such a date. Um, the other benefit to being a journalist who can sum up a story on deadline and with the, the constraints of a certain word count is that you know how to wrap it up. <laughs> and I feel like I have probably talked enough, and I would love to hear from all of you and see if anyone has any questions. So, thank you. <laughs> so, Tracy, do you want to open up questions, or should we, can we just throw it to the floor? <laughs> um, I can kick it off to help loosen everyone up. Okay. Um, I was really curious, um, since you said you have done a lot of research in the Maryland room, if you um, have anyth anything that like really surprised you that you found there, or like something that sticks out in your mind as an artifact or a source. Not, not related to this. When I was researching my nonfiction book on steeplechasing, I came across some really interesting things, interesting old newspaper clippings, and um, really beautiful photographs, um, and it's a little bit like going down a rabbit hole as well. A lot of times you find things that have absolutely nothing to do with the subject matter that you are there for. <laughs> um, and so I can, um, the same thing happened going through the microfiche um, of all the old Baltimore Sun newspapers. Um, you know, I was trying to get a sense of what would have been in the newspaper at the time that I wrote this, and, you know, it was reading classified ads and looking at the, um, you know, just things that were being advertised, not even necessarily the, um, the um, newspaper articles themselves, and eventually found some story about debutantes getting married at a house that I happened to know, and before I knew it, I was off on like mm -hmm. a completely different tangent. So, you know, if you're ever just looking to, you know, just fall into research and just be... In, you know, enjoy sort of the historical um, 
I said, sort of sliding down the rabbit hole. There's so many great places to do it at the library. And I, it was something, it's still something I still enjoy. It's a great way to spend a cold afternoon <laughs> going, through, going through all the wonderful things they have um, at the Pratt. So. Other questions? Anyone? <laughs> so I have a question, uh, Christiana, about, uh, so Alden, oh, I missed the first part. Sorry, I got lost thinking you were in the old library that's been moved out. That's fine. Better late than not at all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, did you talk about Alden's sort of sensuality a little bit? Well, I did a little bit, but if you have a specific question, we can talk about it more. I could talk about Alden's sensuality all night. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, she's, you know, from the theological world, you know, what you present is this really deep picture of what we would call something that's incarnational, so, you know, in the flesh, you know, uh, a kind of uh, humanity mm -hmm. that she had, and then also just, and so I thought the way you, you described with such care um, <coughs> the cycles of nature that came with the, the contemplation of the orchard as well as the cycles in her life and as a female in her life, that there was, I don't know, there was just this uh, connection in a way that, that um, made it seem holy or sort of blessed it as holy or something in a way that uh, I think the church made a million mistakes a long time ago trying to separate us out from ourselves, and so it was almost like it was an effort to bring things together. So I just wondered, that's my perspective on what, how I encountered the, the character, but I didn't know if you had a perspective on it. Maybe that's so, no, it's, it's you, and you made some really valid points that I, that I feel, I, and I'm glad that some of that is coming across. Um, you know, as I mentioned, I definitely have had sort of my own struggles with um, understanding faith in my own life and in the lives of others and just in the sort of the life of the world. And um, I think somewhere deep down, I'm a pagan at heart. And I, um, I have that same sense that Alden has that, you know, God and creation are very linked. And um, I don't know if it comes from being in a sort of rural farming community where you're a lot closer to nature and not just to things growing, but also to things dying, things being sick. Um, you know, you have a much sort of fundamental understanding of the cycle of life and the cycles of nature because it is right there with you. Um, and I, and I, I think that that was sort of why I wanted to, to put her against this extremely structured version of, um, of, of religion. Um, I mean, a really extreme version of it, in the extreme, um, was because I wanted to put sort of those two, almost the two sides of the same coin, the sort of sensuous and earthy and the rigorous and fundamental, um, and find out why these two forces oppose each other so, so violently, when they really are, in many ways, worshiping at the same altar, um, and all you know, want to have the same thing where there is just a sense of a sense of faith and a sense of belonging on on the earth um, and of you know being in community with other people. Um, so, and I also, I mean, I just I personally have I'm a land preservationist. I'm someone who just really loves land and nature, and I wanted to have a place where I could. I think I was able to sort of exercise um, my need to make a statement about the importance of being connected to the earth through someone, and all was sort of my way to do that. Thank you. Any other questions? I have a question. It's 
less about the book and it's more about you, if I can, but I don't want to derail people. <laughs> That's fine. As you, know, as you know, I've known you for a pretty long time. And so one of the things I'm kind of curious about is when you dreamed about what your life would be when you were younger, high school or college or whatever, I think one of the things that I'm realizing as I get older is there's what you dream and then there's what happens and then sometimes the what happens is better than what you dreamed. Sometimes it may be absolutely the opposite. But when you think about the evolution of your life as a professional, what has surprised you the most? That I don't, that I don't get surprised things. easily? It doesn't have to be uh, one thing. But just what comes to your mind? Wow, you know, I've been really surprised or I've been amazed at. And you can even go if you want to say the disappointed. I don't know. But I'm just thinking... You've just had such a, an amazing career as I've watched you. Well, thank all. you. I appreciate that. Um, I think the thing that still continues to surprise me, because I'm, um, particularly as a nonfiction writer, I've, I've met a lot of people and seen a lot of people and covered a lot of very different um, aspects of, of life. And I think the thing that, that never ceases to amaze me is... Um, how forthcoming people will be with their personal stories. Um, I um, years ago ago I wrote a piece for Baltimore Magazine where I am a contributor, and the the article actually won a journalism award. But it was a piece about a um, warden in a prison, and his son was murdered in Baltimore, and he found out through the through the prison grapevine who had probably murdered his son. And he was trying to get the police engaged in this and, and was not getting anywhere. And ultimately, his son's murder was never solved and no one went to prison for it. And he and his wife were frustrated. They were frustrated by their son becoming another statistic. And we couldn't solve that, that crime through this piece. But um, you know, I remember meeting them at their house over by Pimlico. And they were both really nice. And they had never met me before in their lives and uh, you know I sat at their kitchen table and they told me everything about their son with this incredible candor and I'm a complete stranger and they just wanted someone to tell their story they wanted someone to listen to it and to share it and for someone to talk about their son in the public sphere and I was able to do that for them and it never ceases because I'm in many ways I'm an extremely jaded and cynical and sarcastic person and the one thing that never ceases to amaze me is how candid people will be when they want something told and how much people just want to share their stories. Um, and that's, you, are, you become a guardian of their stories too, and that's a huge responsibility. Um, and that sort of goes back to that aspect of, of journalism and of storytelling is that when you, when you put something down in writing, you are responsible for it, whether it's fiction or it's nonfiction, you're responsible for what you put out. And um, you know, being responsible for people's stories is, is both a real, a real gift and also a real burden, and you have to be very careful with it. Do you think you learned a lot about uh, that you were able to talk about the fragility of community and the use of truth and the twisting of truth and the rumor that you that's in the book? Uh, you learned some of that as a journalist, so you, you, because you've seen in investigating, you've actually found the truth and then had to sort of discard the stories. 
I mean, do you think that has that gave you perspective in how you <laughs> created that fragility that 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 was so fragile in that community that you know uh, uh, sometimes the truth coming out that where a community would like to keep stability enough and preserve people's dignity for their own privacy enough. Um, I don't know. Does that make sense? I uh, think a lot of my my interest in um, in community and in you know, creating um, this small town full of sort of secrets, some of them dangerous, some of them less so, and just of um, people with very different personalities. Um, I think a lot of it comes from being um, raised in what was a small community. Um, now, the, the part of Maryland that I grew up in is not as rural as it once was, but it used to be quite rural. And I was a very in-tuned kid and I could kind of tell what was going on in the adult world and I could as I got older you could see you could see that people knew things and didn't talk about it or they talked about it with certain people and um, there was this very delicate dance that goes on um, I think also you know going to a very small um, school uh, there's a similar sort of delicate dance of what Excuse me, particularly because I went to a girls' school, what girls share, what they don't share, who they share it with, um, information being a commodity. Um, and so being in these sort of small, encapsulated communities um, myself growing up, I think I was very attuned to what holds things together and then when it just totally falls apart. And, um, and I said, and it fundamentally I think we always come back together because I think that we do need to live in some form of community just for existence um, but it is always different when things fall apart and they come back together it is always a little bit different and the, the small ways in which community has changed then and I think you see that if you're you know whether your small community is your family or your workplace um, you know, you see those, the workplace politics, you see the way that people work, and when someone doesn't want to obey the workplace politics, what happens? And how do people get past it? How do they work around it? Um, and that was really what I wanted to kind of dissect and get in, into. Um, and to kind of take some of those secrets out and put them all out there, expose all the bullies, and you know, expose the mean girls, and see what happens. And, you know, I have, um, there's um, one of the, the wicked sister that I was talking about, Anna Scott, who's really sort of a nasty person. And, you know, it's kind of like the encapsulation of all mean girls everywhere. Um, you know, she was a, she's a nasty woman, um, and she's a bully in her own right. And, but her comeuppance in the end is very subtle. You know, she's not going to get run out of town or anything. She has a very strong economic background supporting her, but in her own in the, in her own way, in a way that is very meaningful in her life, she does end up getting kind of her just desserts. Um, and the way in which we sort of parcel out vengeance is different um, for each person. And the way in which you can really someone really sort of gets brought down a peg or two is um, it depends on the person that they are and the little ways in which people get, you know, they do, there are repercussions for their actions. And I think she was kind of a good example of that. That she, in the end, she really is going to have a very unhappy life and she walked herself right into it. <laughs> <laughs>
Do you have another project you're working on right now that you can um, tell us about? <laughs> So I have two projects, both in varying states of disrepair. So, um, and I'm trying to figure out which one um, actually has probably the, the legs and the longevity to, to go all the way through the process. So, so I'm not sure. One is sort of a, a gothic, dark uh, family mystery, and one is a sort of a World War II period feminist drama. So, so we'll see if either or none of the above. Um, so these are just in your head, right? Oh no, they're they're down oh, they're on, paper, they're on paper, but they're not they're not completed. They're okay. just in sort of they're just in very very rough draft forms at this stage. So, um, and uh, once I have the time to really sit and and be with them, we'll see which one really feels like it's going to go somewhere, or if I'm just going to start all over again. You may have said this before we got here, but um, is, is writing what you wanted to do when you thought about what you would be when you grew up? A absolutely. From the okay. time I was awesome. very small, it was 100% what I wanted to do with uh -huh. my life. And I feel very privileged that I've been able to spend most of my adult life doing what I love. And probably, hopefully we'll do it till the day I die and they drag the cold pencil out of my hand. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's really the thing that keeps me sort of a sane and human person. How many hours a day do you work on? When I work on, if I'm working on a creative piece, it really depends. Um, and it's, I used to write a lot at night. I found that sort of night energy really engaging. And now that I'm older and a mom, I'm tired at night. And so I actually do much better first thing in the morning. I find that's when I'm most fresh. And... Um, you know, I can sort of sit and fall into something for about three hours and then kind of pull myself back out of it. And it's, it's like waking up from a dream. All of a sudden, you, your back is stiff and your hands are tired and you realize you've been sitting at the computer for three hours. Um, um, I write by hand when I'm trying to organize my thoughts. I find that writing by hand really helps me get um, some of some of the cobwebs out, but then when I really know what I want to say, um, I use a computer, and a lot of times I do it because I can actually type faster than I can handwrite, and if I really kind of have something that I, I'm always afraid I'm going to forget what I want to say, like all of a sudden something will come to me and I'm afraid I'm going to forget it, and I need to get it down, and I can type a lot faster than I can write, um, and so I can really, you know, I can really get it down quickly. There's also something really deeply satisfying about watching a word count go up at the bottom of the page and knowing how much progress that you have made. Um, you know, when you leave after that three-hour stint and you realize you just generated, you know, 2,500 words, there's something deeply satisfying in that, and it's it's a good motivator in what can be a really long process. When you're choosing among these other two projects and in your experience of writing The Orchard Lover, do you, um, do your do your characters actually capture you or do you pursue them or something? Ooh, that's a, that's a mm -hmm. good question. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think that some of them I have to probably go after and create. I think some, and there are some characters I think that just fulfill a role, and so you do have to kind of create them to move the plot a certain way or to be a foil to a certain person. But I think the ones that, that I really like just sort of 
they sort of come up to you, like, um, you know, like Alden really sort of came up to me and, and made sense to me right away. Um, I really like writing villains. I think a lot of people really like writing villains. And the, the villains sort of came to me and were like, let's be bad together, let's go do this. And that was, um, and that was really, you know, that it was fun to kind of have those people just kind of come and present themselves and be like, yes, let's go, let's go be bad. Um, and then others where it just sort of made sense to, to have them, you kind of have to, you have to sort of mine for them, or at least I did. If I grew up in your small community, in reading that book, would I find myself? I hope not. <laughs> no, I think you'd probably find tropes of people that you know. And that's what I wanted to try and, and I think what most authors try to do is to find characters that you can look at and kind of be like, I think, you know, I know that person or I can identify with that person. You know, we've all known, you know, we've all known sort of unconventional people. We've all known bullies. We've all known loneliness and so I think when you see people who encapsulate those sorts of things you might see yourself in them but that doesn't mean it's you or you might see someone that you know but it doesn't mean it's them and I think it just speaks to the universality of character that when people read things they see they feel like it's familiar to them. But you're not going to deliver them. No. Okay. No the tell-all books will all come later when I'm and can pay for really good lawyers. <laughs> well, I'm so, I'm really appreciative of everyone coming out because I know it was a really brutally cold evening and it's just been a real pleasure to talk about books on a cold night, so thank you. Thank you, Christiana. Thank you. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.